I would just like to put a brief trigger warning at the beginning of this episode that we will be discussing um, sexual assault, rape, as well as suicide. So please viewer discretion is advised and listen at your will. Hi, you guys. Welcome back to Still Figuring It Out. I'm your host, Kirsty. And first of all, happy Saturday, you guys. Um, I'm recording this at five o'clock. I just got home from work about like a half an hour ago, I would say. And I don't know about you guys, but there's nothing better than coming home from like a long day, just like even if it's not work, just like doing something and immediately getting into comfy clothes and just like pouring yourself a glass of alcohol and just sitting and relaxing like that is what I was looking forward to all day because it was just a shit show. You know, it's the day after Christmas that I'm recording this. Um, it was just a shit show as it usually is. But um, yeah, I'm literally just, I have my fuzzy blanket like wrapped around me, um, like up to my waist as I'm sitting down recording this right now. And I have my new slippers that I got for Christmas because that's what adults like to get now. I'm like, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, as I've gotten older, I'm 25 now. And I have just really found that I love giving people presents more than receiving them. Like I, for Christmas, I literally just asked people, I was like, just get me stuff that I wouldn't want to buy myself. Like whether it was refills on like my moisturizers, um, like a matching pajama set, a new bathrobe, like underwear like I literally get excited about that because there's nothing worse than like me having to buy it myself so I feel like so much more gratitude like when other people get it for me but um yeah so I hope you guys had a great Christmas um I hope you guys were able to celebrate it whether it was with family and loved ones or even if you were by yourself I hope you still had some way to celebrate it as best as you could um I know it's a very hard time right now and a lot of us are feeling the sadness, you know, I won't lie. I've been feeling pretty depressed lately, um, especially in the past week or so. It comes and goes. I feel in waves. And so I do feel for you. If this was a very trying time for you, um, I was very lucky. I do understand my privilege of being able to spend it with my family and getting to see my grandmother and my brother and all that. So I do understand that. Um, so I just hope that you were able to celebrate in some way, whether you got to see people over FaceTime or Zoom or call them or just anything like that. Um, I do feel that for you when I am here. Um, yeah, it was pretty great. Um, I got to sleep in on Christmas, which is like, you know, when you're little and you always like want to get up before your parents do at like 6 a.m. I was like, no, I woke up at like 9 because uh, Christmas Eve uh, we went to my grandmother's instead of her going over because the weather was really bad. We didn't want her having to like get out of the car, or, like go up places when she could just stay at home. So we did that and we got Chinese, which I usually do. So we didn't have to cook. And um, yeah, we just like sat around, drank some wine. And um, then I went to my best friend's house and we exchanged gifts and we watched um, the Polar Express and drank wine. So it was really fun. It's kind of just like tradition. Um to do that. And I was really lucky and happy that I was still able to do it this year. Um, and like my friend gave me the best gifts. Like he is so good at giving gifts. Like I'm literally wearing one of the gifts that he's giving me now. Um, it's also, if you don't understand this reference, I'm really showing my age, but, um, some people didn't, but I laughed my ass off when I got this present and I've literally been wearing it since Friday. So yesterday, but, um, it's a pullover, sweatshirt and it has a picture of Squidward but like when he did like that art drawing like that art painting in the episode where it's like he's like I call it bold and brash and the janitor goes more like belongs in the trash or like the teacher goes more like belongs in the trash and the janitor takes it and throws it out and he's like oh I missed this one I think it was the one where like um Spongebob was learning to like do art or something and he would just like hit the marble and it would go into something like amazing or something like that but it was it's amazing it's just like the best thing I've ever gotten my mom's like you're not gonna wear that out are you I'm like of course I am this is the best gift I've ever gotten which just goes to show like getting those expensive things or big things like that is just like it's not important it's just the thought that people put into it 
you know, the fact that my friend was like, you know, you were one of the first people that I went shopping for because it was so funny for me to do. And I was like, I know you're going to love it. I'm like, that makes you feel really good to know that, you know, someone cared that much to do that for you. And, um, you know, another thing that I felt really grateful about, um, was the fact that, you know, people listen to you and people want to help invest in your passions and dreams and stuff that brings you joy and happiness. Um, I told my mom that I was like getting like amateurly into painting. I'm not good in any means. Like that's one of the creative things that I am not good at anything that has to do with art or drawing or anything in that realm where it's not using a pen to write. It's to just draw freely. I am not good at, but I am trying to convert my mind to be like, you know what? You're not good. It's not that you're not good. It's that you just need more practice or, you know, it's not about being the best. It's about doing something that you enjoy, even if you're not the best at it. If you find happiness in it, then that's all that should really matter, in my opinion. And um, so I told my mom that and she got me a 12 pack of like little mini paints to do my painting with because I only had four and I was starting to get sick of like doing the same colors for every painting I was doing. So she did that for me. And um probably the best gift I got, um, which I don't know if you guys will be able to tell. I'm hoping because then it might be a waste of getting it. But um I finally got a podcast microphone. Um it's pretty great. It made me feel makes me feel so professional. Like I'm actually recording this outside of my closet on my actual desk with my actual computer with it plugged into it and I just like you guys don't know how professional it makes me feel to know that I'm not recording with like my old headphones my iPhone with my Samsung tablet crouched in my closet with the light only coming from my cell phone flashlight like I'm not kidding that's how it was for like these past six months and I am so happy that I have this it is it just makes me feel really great to know that there's people who are supportive of something that I love doing even if this is something that's just a hobby for me it's like my little passion project and I'm really really grateful for the fact that I had people who listen to me and actually care about like the things that I enjoy doing and like and it just made me feel really happy to do that um but yeah it was a it was a good Christmas. It was very chill, very relaxed. Um, nothing really too crazy that's been happening this past week or anything like that. Just the stress of trying to get through this month, honestly, this holiday, these holidays. It's been very stressful. I've actually been talking to some of my friends from my job and like my mom, and I've made this conscious decision that I'm going to take in January sometime, a week or 10 days off from work and just not do anything related to anything that I've been doing. Just having this same schedule of coming home and doing work for other things and just being so drained. I just want to, it sounds weird, but I, you know, like reconnect with myself in a way and just not have such other things on my mind that are stressing for me or stressful and to just kind of do my own thing and kind of get back to the person that I was before all the stress got in my life, which I know is never easy and can never fully ever go away. But um, it'd be a nice thing um, to have. Um, but yeah, just really haven't been doing much um, the rest of my weekend because I'm recording this on Saturday because I've literally had no time to. Um tomorrow oh I'm actually you guys this is going to sound kind of sad but I'm finally getting a full mattress because I kid you not I have been using a twin mattress for my whole life honestly the only time I had a big mattress was when I lived with my grandmother and it was so nice to be able to stretch my legs out and have them not fall off so that's happening and I'm very excited about that because I'm like rearranging my room. I used to do this when I, um, I lived with my mom like years ago. We would always like rearrange our rooms like twice a year. Like usually like when the new year happened or like in the springtime, just like get a little like change and like do a deep clean and just like reorganize ourselves in our room and whatnot. And it felt actually really nice because I kind of want to move things around. Um, 
So that should be fun to do. And then just like my regular stuff that I do tomorrow, like laundry and food shop and all that fun adult stuff. All great. Um, but yeah, I didn't really want to um, do too much of a recap, but uh, because of, you know, I really want to put so much attention towards this book that we're going to be talking about. But um, I do want to say about one thing. Um, and if I know I'm going to like look back at these episodes when I might actually listen to them sometime, um, especially the one about like my poetry that I read, um, which, you know, I never say I regret stuff, but I feel like, oh my God, I don't even know who I was that so many months ago, like back in August or July, like who was I? Um, but I just want to talk about something. So I finally listened to myself and my friends and just everyone around me. And I did something this morning. I deleted this guy that I had been seeing this whole year. I don't know what the fuck we are. I don't even know if we're anything anymore. And to be honest, I don't really feel anything about it. Um, I deleted his number, but I deleted all of his texts first. Um, and then I deleted his Snapchat because this is going to sound so stupid. I was like, he didn't text me Merry Christmas or he didn't Snapchat me Merry Christmas either. And it's not about the fact that I need that to feel fulfilled. It's about the fact that it's something so simple that you can do for somebody. And this is what I've learned this year. And it's been something that I'm still trying to understand fully, but I'm getting closer to. And I was saying to myself when I was at work, so I wouldn't forget this because I felt so cool when I was coming up with it, but I'm sure everyone and their mother has heard of it. But um, but it's very true. And I hope maybe if you're in this situation or you're teetering on this sort of situation, you don't know what to do. I hope that maybe this can be something of a push for you to hear to kind of get over that other leap to get where you need to go. So this is a lesson that I've learned this year after doing that with him. If they wanted you, they would show it. And if they're not showing it, then they don't want you. But when they do show it, I hope that you're strong enough to walk away and not reciprocate or give more than when you have been giving to this person who can't ever even meet you a quarter of the way of what they're giving, of what you're giving to them. And it seems like such a simple thing. You know, I talked about this in episodes back and I bring it up all the time. And it's the fact of that you are so much, you're so much worth, you're worth so much more. I'm like, when can I say this? I've only had two sips of this terrible alcohol drink. It's like the mic's hard, but it's not lemonade, it's tangerine. And it's so gross. I'm like, I needed something and I didn't want to go into like the new cider that my best friend gave me. So I'm like, this will do because I don't have any alcohol at home. But, um, I'm going to take another sip. So don't mind this ASMR. (laughs) But it's the true fact of the matter. If this person wanted you, they would show it. And if they're not showing it, then why are you going to be the person to keep doing it? Because then they're going to get comfortable with the fact of knowing that they don't have to do anything because they know that you're going to keep doing it. And it's time for you to stop. Just stop. And when they finally don't reciprocate it back, you'll know that you are the one putting all this effort in for no fucking reason, for no reason. You know, I can count on all my hands how many times I was stupid enough to give something to someone who didn't deserve it. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, I am so much better off not putting so much time and energy into a person who can't give it back to me. And then to make me feel like it's my fault or to make me feel bad about a situation when it had nothing to do with me. If they're letting you play the victim when they did nothing wrong, then they're the problem. Because if someone cared about you, they wouldn't do that to you. You know, I'm trying to take these words in too. And I hope that you can see something from this as well. So I just wanted to say that because I felt really good and I actually wrote something in my journal and you know, I wasn't going to share it. Honestly, I wrote it this morning when I was getting ready for work, 
at like 6.30 and 6.45 in the morning. It was meant to be a poem, but it's not. It's like, I don't know. But I put, I deleted your number and it felt good, free. Because for the first time this year, you'll know what it's like to not have me. I hope it was worth it because now I know I deserve better and it was never going to be you. And I can happily move on knowing that. Thank you for what you've given me. I can't wait for someone better to come along and give me everything you couldn't and more. So that was me in my feels listening to Taylor Swift's Evermore album. Probably tolerate it. Um, and I just wanted to share that with you guys. Um, and I really went over this introduction because I really wanted to talk about this book so much. And I told him, I literally put a note. I was like, make this segment short to give more time to talk about book. And clearly we didn't do that. But without further ado, we are now going to go into this, our monthly book club book review segment. And this is the episode that's actually going to end this year. And I feel like it's such a good way to end the year. Um, It's going to be kind of tough to listen. So I wanted to just give you that in the beginning. Um, You know, I feel like unfortunately, a lot of people can relate to this topic. Um, I'm not going to say a certain gender because I feel like everyone can relate to this topic. I'm more so other people, Um, you know, myself included. I can relate to this. I can't relate to it as bad as she had felt or went through. Um, so yeah, we're just going to get into it. We're going to talk. I don't know how long it's going to be. I have a lot of passages that I want to read, um, and I want to get through all of them. So this could be a short one or this could be a long one, but I just feel like this book is something that people need to hear about and hopefully read and get something from this. And I hope it doesn't make you feel like you're alone in your situation or, your past or your trauma. And I want this to be a safe place for us to talk about stuff and, you know, feel like maybe if you've kept it to yourself, maybe you can open up to somebody, whether it be a friend, a family member, a loved one, a partner, or a therapist, or even jotting it down is good to do. I just hope that this segment and this book helps you find a way to get not even closure, but just a place of safety at a time when you didn't feel the least safe in your life. So that's what we're going to do today. So the book that we are talking about is the memoir, Know My Name by Chanel Miller. And how I came about this book is I knew about this book a couple years ago. Um, I knew about it because that's all I heard about in the news. And I'm sure you heard about it all in the news too. Um, I feel like I don't really need to introduce her that much, but she was the Stanford assault victim in the case of her versus Brock Turner. Um, and I knew I wanted to read this book and it was kind of on a whim when I saw it. I'm not going to lie. I saw that it came out in paperback and I wanted to buy it then because the hardcover was expensive. Nevertheless, I knew I wanted to read this book. And so I picked it up and I bought it. And even the cashier was like, this is a really good book. You're going to really enjoy it. And I knew I was going to like it. I am someone who has been really into memoirs and liking those, but I didn't know how hard this book was going to be to get through and not just even the diction or the words or how long the chapters were, anything to do with that. It's the fact that I could barely get through a chapter a night because of how heavy it was. And I think Chanel in a way had to do it like that because, you know, this is her story. This is her side of the story. This is what she wanted everyone to know. And, you know, when you're a victim of sexual assault, when you're a victim of rape, or any of those traumas, all you want is for someone to believe you. All you want is for your voice to be heard and not choked back or held back from the perpetrator's hands. And I think she did more than a phenomenal job detailing her struggles, detailing her trauma, detailing her pain, detailing all of her thoughts into such a concise book. And knowing that we have her story on here, 
is so amazing and fulfilling. And I knew that this was a book that was important to read in my life. And I just, I'm so grateful that I picked it up and read it because I mean, you clearly are going to know that I'm going to recommend this book, but, um, yes. So I am now going to read the excerpt. So it says universally acclaimed, rapturously reviewed in an instant New York times bestseller. This breathtaking memoir gives readers a privilege of knowing her, not just as Emily Doe, but as Chanel Miller, sorry. The writer, the artist, the survivor, the fighter. Her story of trauma and transcendence illuminates a culture biased to protect perpetrators, indicting a criminal justice system designed to fail the most vulnerable and ultimately shining with the courage required to move through suffering and live a full and beautiful life. Know My Name will forever transform the way we think about sexual assault, challenging our beliefs about what is acceptable and speaking truth to the tumultuous reality of healing entwining pain resilience and humor this memoir will stand as a modern classic and that excerpt does it justice and more this is the kind of book that i will always bestow on any bookshelf i have in whatever place or house in my future um it will stand with all the other books probably as the best. Um, You know, I always said that I loved reading memoirs and I didn't start loving them until I got in my 20s and I really started appreciating the story of a person and not just a fictional story. You know, I love fiction, but, you know, it's something about digging into a person's life where you think that you know them and you think that, oh, like when it comes to celebrities or just actors or actresses or singers or anybody like that, anybody in the public eye, and you think that you know this person because of what you see on the media, what you see behind a screen or what you see on a TV TV screen or in their pictures. And then you get their book in your hand and you realize that you don't know this person at all. And it kind of takes you through thinking about what you thought you knew about this person. And the fact of the matter is, is that there's a lot that people don't know. And for anyone to be able to talk about something, whether it's trauma or just their life is, I hate saying this word, but I, I feel like I have to say it. It's, it's brave of them to do. And I hate saying brave, you know, it's not brave for someone to do. It should be normalized more. You know, I think people should, it should be normalized more for people to talk about their struggles and not feel like they are lesser than or are portrayed as weak. Um, I think finding your voice is something that's so important. And, I commend Chanel Miller for her bravery and for her resilience and for her courage and her not giving a fuck. Um, It's just, it's amazing. And, you know, the book also put her um, victim impact statement. I hope I'm saying that right. I really am hope. Yes. Her statement Um, That was actually um, got put on BuzzFeed. And I remember, I remember seeing that on BuzzFeed um, because I remember seeing in the news, you know, this was such a big news story for a while. Um, And I remember seeing her victim impact statement on BuzzFeed and, you know, she talked about in the book too, about how she thought like, oh, they're going to cut out so much of what she had to say, just like everyone else does in the jury, in the courtroom and, you know, the prosecutor. And the fact that they kept her 12 pages of her words that she wrote down and spent months on was first of all, bravo to them because it shows that, you know, you believe who we believe and we care about every person's story and words and they don't deserve to be shunned away. Um, I remember reading it and even reading it again on here. You know, I thought I was a good writer and then I see 
her words and how, you know, I'm going to talk about it in here too, of how she was able to compile all this together. And it was just so amazing. I felt like I was sort of at times intruding on what she was saying or what she was writing. It kind of made me feel like, am I supposed to read this right now? You know, it was just so amazing and took me back. And I'm going to read a little bit in um, the victim impact statement. I was kind of like, oh, I wish I could read it all, but I know no one wants to hear that. You know, you can listen to it on Audible if you want to do that or like get the audiobook, um, which I totally understand. But, you know, if there's anything that you get from this um, podcast episode, even if you don't want to read the book, please just go on BuzzFeed or go into Google and type up Chanel Miller impact victim impact statement on BuzzFeed and just read that because it is very, very well done and amazing. And the fact that she was able to read this entire thing and first of all, not get silenced or interrupted and to be able to read that in court with her rapist and everyone over there is fucking amazing. And that's all I'm going to say on that. But Yeah, I just, you know, the reason why I wanted to talk about this book is because I felt like it was so important to talk about. And especially, you know, with the upbringing of the Me Too movement and just, you know, I feel like a lot of the time we don't feel the need to believe people. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's their story. And if someone says to you that this happened you believe them because why would someone make up something like that? You know, it's a very hard thing for someone to admit to somebody or to speak up about coming from (laughs) my own thing. And, you know, I will talk about it, but it's not just about me. Um, But reading this book, it really did bring back those times. I mean, I did not have it anywhere as bad as what she went through. But it's unfortunate that we all have a story like this, that most of the time when you talk to people about stuff or say things, you know, they'll say something along the lines of this. And it's just very eye-opening to know that you're not alone, which is good, but it's also sad to know that other people had to go through the same things or close to the same things or something like it that you went through. Um, But yeah, I... I'm now going to go through and read some of my favorite quotes and passages and just kind of talk about why I like it and how I made me feel. And I'm not going to lie, you guys, there were a lot of emotions I felt throughout when reading this entire thing. Um, there were a lot of, there were some tears reading it. Um, so I am just going to go and do that. So. I'm like trying to move everything around here to make sure that like I don't bump into anything because like I love my desk because it's really big, but um, there's just a lot going on. Um, I have like my candle going on. I have my glass of what you guys said, terrible, terrible alcohol, but was needed. So yeah, we're going to get into it. And without further ado, also, if you have the book, please follow along. I will be saying the page numbers. So... So it's like a real book club. So the first passage is on page 23. And it's the second paragraph. And this was right around the time when the trials were starting or like thoughts about it were happening. Um, this was when... Brock was released from jail after like getting arrested on bail. So she says, I didn't know that money could make the cell door swing open. I didn't know that if a woman was drunk when the violence occurred, she wouldn't be taken seriously. I didn't know that if he was drunk when the violence occurred, people would offer him sympathy. I didn't know that my loss of memory would become his opportunity. I didn't know that being a victim was synonymous with not being believed. 
I just, you know, a lot of these passages that I did, and there's so many more that I can talk about. The one thing is that she does such a good job at digging the nail in the head at everything she went through and just hearing it and reliving it again, you know, after seeing it on the news, cause you know, I didn't really go at the time when it was happening, you know, I just thought to myself, you know, this is so unfair. You know, I clearly, I believe her, you know, it's sad that people didn't and still don't believe her and would side with someone who is clearly a rapist, you know, but yeah, let's see. Our next passage is on page 51 and it's at close to the bottom it's the second last paragraph into the next paragraph so it says the media was no help they counted my drinks and counted the seconds brock could swim 200 yards topped the article with a picture of brock wearing a tie it could have doubled as his linkedin profile and what you'll hear a lot in this these passages is the fact that they the media kind of tore Chanel Miller to filth or Emily Doe at the time. And they brought up, you know, her partying, her college days, all the bad things. And, you know, I can say this a lot of the times, but women are the ones who are never the ones who are believed. And they're the ones who always get the shit end of the stick. And then we always praise the men because they're the ones who are always the ones that are the perpetrators. And throughout this, they were counteracting, saying this about her, but then they were going on about Brock being such a good swimmer, and he had hopes for the Olympics, and now his hopes and dreams are done, and he has so much so much sadness. And it's like they never think about the fact of what this woman went through. And we get it all in here. I felt like I was with her when she was in her bedroom alone or crying on her bathroom floor or throwing up in her wastebasket because of all the stress and the trauma that she went through. And the fact that people still didn't believe her to this day probably just, it upsets me and I have all the right to be upset about it. And so the next one is right after that. And she says, I wanted to trim all the fat, all these distractions to show you the meat of the story. I saw man goes to a party, kisses three women, finds one alone who cannot speak, takes her into the trees, strips her, sticks his hand up her, is tackled by two men who's noticed she isn't moving. He then denies running, can say nothing about the victim except that she enjoyed it. So take out the whiskey at 10.15, the urination, the younger sister's name, the Olympic freestyle, at the heart, that's your whole damn story. And it's a fact that even in the court, not even just the media, but in the court, they misconstrued so much of the story and they made it so it was Chanel's fault. And, you know, that's what they do. And she detailed it of how they would ask her these questions that would just keep not even about like the stupid questions that we hear that are infuriating about, you know, like, you know, what were you wearing? You know, how much did you drink? Were you asking for it? You know, do you have a boyfriend? Do you have tendencies like this? How were you like in college when you were partying? Why were you at this party to begin with? All these questions instead of asking the better ones, like, are you okay? Or saying the things to him you know, why didn't they ask him those same questions or why didn't they ask him harder questions and not bring up your accomplishments or your future goals that you had for yourself? Because no one cared about those when it was Chanel. No one did. But it's because she was a victim. It's because she was the one who started the trial. And they said to themselves, well, we're not going to believe her. We're going to do everything we can to help this perpetrator who is a victim to our eyes because she's the one who did it wrong. And that just like is like bile in my throat. It's so like the way that she was mistreated during this trial, the fact that this trial had to go on for that long and the end results about it is just so 
upsetting to all victims everywhere, to all rape survivors, to all sexual assault survivors. It's so disheartening. And it's, you know, it's the biggest reason why people don't ever come up or speak up. And, you know, she paved the way for that to feel better, to give people the opportunity or give people the courage to finally say something. But during this whole time, people were saying, you know, that's why women don't speak up. That's why people in general don't speak up because this is what happens. You misconstrue a story of what someone went through and you blame it on them. And that's just fucked in the head to me. Yes, I quoted champagne problems then, but that's besides the point. Um, our next page is on 58. Um, and this is when she was with, um, her boyfriend, Lucas, um, during all this time, like after the fact, when they were waiting for trial, talking about, you know, comfort and being in someone's arms. And she says, I didn't realize how much I'd craved being wrapped in the arms of another person. When we think of people fitting together, we may think of a man inserting himself into a woman, but there are many ways we overlook the way ears are thin as construction paper, allowing me to press the side of my face against his chest. Fingers can be interlaced without getting tangled. One hand can create a tiny chair for one chin. We are designed to bend and fold to comfort ourselves and each other. We have so many small parts that need tending to. After the assault, I felt this need to be touched, but wanted nothing to do with invade, inject, insert, inside. Only wanted the intimacy of being wrapped up safely in something. The next um, passage is on page 66. And it still talks about um, her boyfriend, but then um, the way other people see having the boyfriend during this time. She goes, I was thankful to have Lucas, but it bothered me that having a boyfriend and being assaulted should be related as if I alone was not enough. At the hospital, it had never occurred to me that it was important I was dating someone. I had only been thinking of me and my body. It should have been enough to say I did not want a stranger touching my body. It felt strange to say I have a boyfriend, which is why I did not want Brock touching my body. What if you're assaulted and you didn't already belong to a male? Was having a boyfriend the only way to have your autonomy respected? Later, I'd read suggestions that I cried rape because I was ashamed I had cheated on my boyfriend. Somehow the victim never wins. And I found that really interesting because in a way she was right, you know, if you have a boyfriend, it's kind of like that free pass you get to be like, oh, well, you know, she had the boyfriend. So getting raped is was so bad, you know, they felt a little bit more sympathy for her because of the fact that she had a boyfriend. So it felt better for her to say like, you know, it was wrong for him to do that because I had a boyfriend, not it was wrong for him to do that because he shouldn't have done it. And we think that, you know, what she said, you know, we think because we are with someone already, we're in a relationship with somebody that it's wrong for someone to do that when in the end it should just be because it's wrong in general, whether or not you're with somebody or not putting your hands on somebody or in somebody is not right to do regardless of whatever relationship you have, whether it's just alone or with somebody. The next passage is on page 80 and it's at kind of towards the end of the page. And this, oh, I have a story actually about this that happened to me last week. Not especially this, but just the way that things that women go through. She said, I began avoiding certain streets. If I was spoken to going one way, I'd come back a different way and found myself winding around many blocks. I trained myself to tuck my head down, avoiding eye contact, feigning invisibility. Instead of strolling, looking up at the trees, I walked with unwavering conviction or stared down at my feet. And this was about when she went to um, RISD in Providence for the summer. And she talked about how she didn't have a car. So she walked a lot. She walked to all her places and whatnot. 
And every time she would get catcalled or followed by men or just like all these terrible things that would happen to her because of these fucking men. And, you know, and it's the one reason, you know, I say this to myself all the time. It's like, and you wonder why women don't like being outside or don't like being outside by themselves. And it's such a fucked up thing because we shouldn't have to worry about that stuff, but it's because of the way that men are that this is what happens. And this happened to me actually last Sunday. I was going to do laundry and this was still when we had um, a parking van in my city. So I had to walk like an extra 10 minutes because my car was parked further away from where I normally had gone. And um, all I was like going um, to make sure that there weren't any cars coming when I was going next to the cars to get to mine. And I saw this car slowing down. I was like, you know, in my back of my mind, I'm like, something's going to happen. And would you believe it? Something did happen. Um, there was this guy and he stopped his car. He looked twice my age. It was like a van. How fitting. And he goes, Hey, can I get your number? And I just looked at him and I went, no. And he goes, Oh my bad. And just drives off. And it's like, you don't understand that maybe you doing that is just a funny thing, but to me, it's triggering, it's upsetting, and it caused me a lot of anxiety after the fact because it made me feel like, oh, well, now I can't even walk to my car alone. And then it made me so afraid. Like, I remember that next day I was closing, so I wasn't getting home until 10 o'clock. And I thought to myself, well, what if? someone comes back or what if this person comes back or what if it's another person or what if people are around you know you get these thoughts in your head because you know it's happened before or it could happen again or this isn't something new which is so fucking sad it's like you know it's something that we have to go through it's a daily thing sometimes it's you know what people say oh it's just something that you have to go through when it shouldn't have to be normal it's a pretty sad thing that it is you know, you feel like you don't have the comfort of even being in your own place. And it's just really scary. But I, when I was reading that, I thought to myself, I could totally relate to that even back then. So this next part is on page... Um, 110. And this talks about her going to the courtroom and the nervousness that she felt. And I thought that this line was really, really interesting, or just the way that she thought she was perceived by people. And she goes, I switched the blue wiener dog to my left hand so I could raise my right hand to be sworn in. I said, I do. Words I thought I'd speak first at my wedding, not my rape trial. <sighs> like, wow. And then this is how she thought people were saying about her in their mind. She goes, I wondered if they were surprised I was Asian, if I looked like a woman or a girl, if I appeared mundane, less pretty than imagined. Why didn't he choose someone better looking? Stop. What are you thinking? Be quiet. You know, getting that train into a mind of like, you know, this is what they think of me and all that. It's just, it's crazy. And the fact that she went through her entire trial in this book, it's not only upsetting about how long it took, it was upsetting about the way that she was treated and the way that she was perceived as always being the bad person. You know, we see this time and time and again with all these trials and all these people and all the accusations. We always blame the woman because it's the woman who speaks up first. And so we automatically think that they're in the wrong because, you know, they think the first thing is like, how can you remember it? Or, you know, that's not how it went. And it's just so fucked up. It honestly is. Um, it's infuriating and in a way. The next passage is on 133. And this was still when she was um, 
walking around and you know with the trial going on and all this she always had like these thoughts in her head about people being like misconstruing her words and her thoughts and how she would be perceived and so when she was walking home at night um this is what she thought she goes but i could already hear the questions why was what was she doing alone at night why didn't she just ask someone to accompany her where was she coming from? Comedy? Is she even funny? How many beers did she have? What are her jokes about? Where was her boyfriend? Is there a call log? What was she wearing? The voices had amplified since the hearing, unfolding endlessly in my head, so maddening, I didn't realize the final guy had stopped walking. And it talks about how he, after like help, he walked home with her. Next passage is on page 138. And it talks about, you know, her doing all these fun things, but still feeling like she was splitting herself between two people, the Chanel Miller and the Emily Doe, the court life and trying to get back to her real life. I'm going to take a break and sip this terrible alcohol just so I can finish it. And yes, I do have this in a wine glass just to feel something. But she goes, I joined the Storytellers Club, went to drag shows and chocolate-themed parties. I occupied myself writing stories, printing them on campus. Sometimes I went to class with Lucas and spent the hour drawing. But I could never lose the feeling that this was not my real life. That reality awaited me back in the courthouse. Mentally, I always felt isolated. I just got to choose my surroundings. And the one thing she talked about a lot in this um, memoir was how how she went through this mentally and how she in a way survived that as well. Going through this was very mentally draining and challenging for her, which it is for any victim or survivor of this. It's the hardest thing to get through. And we try to get this idea that we can suppress it and forget about it, which is what she tried to do in the beginning when she was telling her sister, Oh, I'm fine. It's something just happened. But we see over time that you can't always just, weigh it down on you and put it in the back of your mind because eventually it's going to come back up. And I guess I kind of just want to, I guess that's how I'll briefly just talk about my story. Um, I don't talk about it a lot, not because of the fact that it's not traumatizing, but the fact that I've kind of done this thing where I don't feel the need to talk about it that much because I'm not going to give the person who did it, the satisfaction of knowing that I still think about it because I've really just developed this way of putting it behind me. But I was 21 years old. It was in January of my senior year of college. I met this person on Tinder and I went to his dorm and we were doing a drinking game. Um, it was around like 1 or 2 a.m. I was tipsy. And we went to bed and the next thing I knew, I woke up and his fingers were inside of me. And, you know, back in college, I was a virgin. I didn't lose my virginity until I was with my ex when I was 22. Um, and I just remember thinking to myself that I was... I had this outer body experience and that I was numb and I couldn't move or I couldn't speak and I couldn't do anything. And I thought to myself, this isn't how it's supposed to be. All I wanted to do was just sleep. And this person had their plans. And I just remember the next day I felt very out of it. I remember going to the bathroom with my friends waiting for me in the cafe and there was blood in the toilet and I didn't get my period yet. And, you know, I tell a lot of people that I went on birth control because, you know, the usual things, you know, heavy period, irregular flow, cramps. But the reason I went on birth control is because I got sexually assaulted. And... I remember telling the person that did it to me, you know, 
everything. And he said to me, he said, if you tell anybody, I will ruin your life. And so I didn't until I got older. And like Chanel, when she did that victim impact statement and wrote about it, I wrote it. I wrote about it. I wrote about it in articles. I wrote about it in poems. I kept them in my journals for a while to kind of just get that trauma out of my head. And then I thought to myself, I said, this is kind of unfair that I have this in here when it could potentially help somebody else. And that's what I say in my writing all the time. I say, I do it because I want to help people. I want them to be able to relate to it, whether it's something good or bad. And so I released stuff. And at the time I told my two best friends and I've only told two other guys that I'd been, that I was sexual with. Um, but this past year, I, I finally told my mom about it and I'm like, I'm not going to cry. It's, uh, it's four years ago. I told my mom about it and I'll never forget like what she said to me. She said, why didn't you tell me or why didn't you tell anybody? And I plainly said to her, I said, because no one would believe me. And she told me, she said, I believe you. And hearing those three words, it was like the confirmation I didn't know I needed at the time. But hearing it then, now, it was what I needed. And it made me know that it wasn't my fault. Even though I'd blame myself all this time, I still blame it myself. I'm sure others would too if they hear this. But it was never my fault. And it was never her fault. And it was never your fault if you have been a victim of this. I just want you to know that. So let's go. That was a really bad smooth transition, but um, let's go to um, page 153. And this kind of talks about how she can go and have a typical normal life, which is how some people feel. But at the end of the day, we're kind of lying to ourselves, actually. And she says, I took a photo of the burrito and posted it online. I received 32 likes. It was a joke with myself, playing tricks on the world. People believed I was enjoying my afternoon, when in reality, I was about to face my rapist. How creepy it was that we could conceal these stories. How easy it was to pretend. The slivers we show. The mountains we hide. You know, people... Like her and myself and other people, we do such a good job of hiding things that have caused us such pain and emotions. And we try to pretend, you know, not even with something like this, just with our mental health. We do such a good job with social media and pretending that everything's okay and post a happy picture or something completely random. But at the end of the day, we're only lying to ourselves because that's not how we feel, but we're still doing it to make sure others know that we're okay, even if we have to lie about it because we don't want them to have to feel bad for us or feel like, or have us feel like we're such a burden to others and ourselves. I think we just need to be better with ourselves and other people, in my opinion. So that's on that. The next um, passage is on page 191. She says, victims are often automatically accused of lying, but when a perpetrator is exposed for lying, the stigma doesn't stick. Why is it that we're wary of victims making false accusations, but rarely consider how many men have blatantly lied about, downplayed, or manipulated others to cover their own actions? And I don't have to say anything about else about that. Um... Our next passage is on page 216. She says, for the past 17 months, every time I had a thought related to the case, I would jot it down in the notes section of my phone and label it with Brock's initials. 
Finally, I sat down and searched BT. Dozens of notes appeared that I had not read since writing them. I copied and pasted all of the text into a Word document. I had dozens of pages of haphazard notes. I sat and read everything in one sitting. Then I walked out of the room and did not return to my desk for three days. Through all my years of writing classes, teachers told us that if a topic felt too raw, you put it aside for a later time, create distance. But this deadline had been created for me. I had never encountered an assignment like this to write up a list of emotional damage. And this was about her writing the victim impact statement and the process that she went through writing this. You know, I say when I write about things, I write about things from my past and things that have caused me pain. And for the most time, they coincide with one each other. And, you know, everyone processes things differently. For me, I feel the need to try to get everything out as quickly as I can because that's just how I deal with things. I don't want to have to think about it. I know what I want to write, when I want to write and do it because if I think about it too much, then I get it so in my head and then I don't end up wanting to do it because I'm afraid. But what Chanel went through, the whole process of writing it down and trying to figure out what she wanted and all the time it took it just goes to show how differently people go through stuff and we don't realize how hard it can be sometimes to relive these things and have to go through each and everything that they were thinking to make it into something to help benefit themselves or hope for the best. So this is on page 232 and it kind of talks about what people were saying at the trial. And some of these, I feel like people have heard like them talking about and quoting. So I'm just going to read like a few of them. He said Brock's life had been deeply altered. He will never again be his happy go lucky self with that easygoing personality and welcoming smile. We had come to Brock's funeral. I was always excited to buy him a big ribeye steak to grill or to get his favorite snack for him. Now he eats only to exist. I could hear my family stirring. That is a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action out of his 20 plus years of life. I was still. I just wanted him to be finished. He has no prior criminal history and has never been violent to anyone, including his actions on the night of January 17th. This one felt like a direct hit, a message just for me. Like what she went through in that court. My God. It's like you're in there with her. The next patches is on patches. The next passage is on 237. She says, January has 31 days. Rapists get three months. Everyone in the world knew this except me. And this is when, you know, the good thing about the jury finding him guilty, but the fact that they only gave him three months because they didn't want to ruin his life or alter his reality too much. So we're going to let him off easy. It's just so infuriating to this day, even though it was a couple years ago. It's just so fucking crazy to me. The stuff that this guy had such leniency towards him. So on 252, it says, one of the greatest dangers of victimhood is a singling out. All of your attributes and anecdotes assigned blame. In court, they'll try to make you believe you are unlike the others. You are different, an exception. You are dirtier, more stupid, more promiscuous, but it's a trick. The assault is never personal. The blaming is. And that's such a very true statement. Once again. I swear we're almost done. I try not to be like this. I knew it was going to be a long episode, which I'm happy about. Um, so page 278. Oh, I love this one. There's still like so many left. Okay. Society gives woman the near impossible task of separating harmlessness from danger. The foresight of knowing what some men are capable of. When we call out assault, when we hear it, Trump says, I don't think you understand just words. You're overreacting, overly offended, hysterical, rude, relax. So we dismiss threatening statements and warning signs, apologizing for our paranoia. 
We go into a party or meeting thinking it's just a party or meeting. But when we are taken advantage of and come crawling back damaged, they say, how could you be so naive? You failed to detect danger. Let your guard down. What did you think would happen? Trump made it clear the game is rigged. The rules keep changing. It doesn't matter what you think is assault because in the end, he decides. And this was during his um, election when that video came out of him saying, you know, grab her by the pussy and all that. So I actually kind of forgot about that. And so hearing her like relive that and talk about it again was quite interesting. So the next passage is on page 311. She says, there have been numerous times I have not brought up my case because I do not want to upset anybody or spoil the mood because I want to preserve your comfort because I've been told that what I have to say is too dark, too upsetting, too targeting, too triggering. Let's tone it down. You'll find society asking you for the happy ending, saying, come back when you're better. When what you say can make us feel good, when you have something more uplifting, affirming. This ugliness was something I never asked for. It was dropped on me, and for a long time, I worried it made me ugly too. It made me into a sad, unwelcome story that nobody wanted to hear. She also goes to say, I do not write to trigger victim victims. I write to comfort them, and I found that victims identify more with pain than platitudes. When I write about weakness about how I am barely getting through this, my hope is that they feel better because it aligns with the truth they are living. If I were to say I was healed and redeemed, I worry a victim would feel insufficient, as if they have not tried hard enough to cross some non-existent finish line. I write to stand beside them in their suffering. I write because the most healing words I have been giving are, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to fall apart because that's what happens when you are broken. But I want victims to know they will not be left there, that we will be alongside them as they rebuild. And on the last page of the book before like her victim impact statement, 328, the last paragraph, she says, I survived because I remained soft because I listened, because I wrote, because I huddled close to my truth, protected it like a tiny flame in a terrible storm. Hold up your head when the tears come, when you are mocked, insulted, questioned, threatened, when they tell you you are nothing, when your body is reduced to openings, the journey will no longer, will be no, will be longer than you imagined. Trauma will find you again and again. Do not become the ones who hurt you. Stay tender with your power. Never fight to injure, fight to uplift. Fight because you know that in light, in this life, you deserve safety, joy, and freedom. Fight because it is your life, not anyone else's. I did it, I am here. Looking back, all the ones who doubted or hurt or nearly conquered me faded away, and I am the only one standing. So now the time has come. I dust myself off and go on. And the last passages were just ones that I wanted to do from her victim impact statement probably the most important opening line is and one that I still remain I still know so clearly um, you don't know me but you've been inside me and that's why we're here today it's just so impactful and then on page 344 she said when she was like reading about like the things she says, I kept reading in the next paragraph. I read something that I will never forgive. I read that according to him, I liked it. I liked it again. I do not have words for those feelings. And then two paragraphs after that, she says, and then at the bottom of the article, after I learned about the graphic details of my own sexual assault, the article listed his swimming times. She was found breathing unresponsive with her underwear, six inches away from her bare stomach curled in fetal position. By the way, he's really good at swimming. Throw in my mile time if that's what we're doing. I'm good at cooking. Put that in there. I think the end is where you list your extracurriculars to cancel out all the sickening things that have happened. Oh, I just, you know, you look, you read this and you, you wish that you were kind of a fly in the wall during that time to know how she was able to say all this and to know that these were all notes that she had put into her phone and took so long to compact into a 12-page statement. 
it's amazing. And it's such an honor to even get the chance to read this. And I wanted to just read the last paragraph of it on page 362. She says, and finally to girls everywhere, I am with you on nights when you feel alone. I am with you. When people doubt you or dismiss you, I am with you. I fought every day for you. So never stop fighting. I believe you. As the author Anne Lamott once wrote, lighthouses don't go running all over an island looking for boats to save. They just stand there shining. Although I can't save every boat, I hope that by speaking today, you absorbed a small amount of light, a small knowing that you can't be silenced, a small satisfaction that justice was served, a small assurance that we are getting somewhere, and a big, big knowing that you are important, unquestionably, you are untouchable, you are beautiful, you are to be valued, respected, undeniably, every minute of every day. You are powerful, and nobody can take that away from you. To girls everywhere, I am with you. Thank you. So yeah, that is Know My Name by Chanel Miller. Obviously, I recommend this book. I understand it is a very hard topic to read, especially from someone who can relate to it and have gone through it and have witnessed it themselves. So I do want to just say that to read it with caution. Um, if anything, like I said, I do recommend you look up her victim and patch speech, her statement. I thought it was very, I like, it was amazing. Um, so yeah, um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know it was a little bit longer than usual, but I just know I wanted to give this book and her justice. Um, I really wanted to talk about it and just, there were so many more quotes I could have talked about in passages. I even took some out as I was going through, but I just hope that you got something from this and to know that whoever, wherever you are, that you're not alone and I believe you. So with that, you guys, I hope you have a great rest of your week and I will talk to you guys all again next week for a new episode. And I do want to say, because I'll be talking to you guys again in the new year, 2021. Um, I hope you guys have a very safe, healthy, and happy new year. And I will talk to you guys in 2021. Bye.